Welcome to the Gritty Leaders podcast. Today, I'm lucky enough to have a conversation with Brendan Hall. At 27 years old, Brendan was the youngest and least experienced of the 10 professional skippers selected from over 100 applicants to crew identical 68-foot clipper yachts in a 35,000-mile round-the-world yacht race. But Brendan didn't just make up the numbers. He won it by some margin. The crew are all amateurs, which means you or I can take part if you stump up the money. You can take part in a leg or the whole journey. About half the crew sailed the whole time, and the other half joined and left at key stages along the way, making for real challenges in creating and bonding a team. It's an 11-month journey covering all the oceans of the world, including the perilous Southern Ocean. Brendan will tell us about the highs and lows of this amazing achievement, and our conversation covers so many key aspects of great leadership and team building. Since the race, he's told his story in a wonderful book, Team Spirit, which has sold over 35,000 copies. He's an international keynote speaker, working with the world's best businesses, like Toyota, PwC, GSK, Tesco, Lloyds, Bayer, the list goes on. He also runs leadership team offsites for senior leadership teams, and I've been lucky to bring him in to many of the teams that I work with. So let's learn more about Brendan, sailing, teamwork, human nature, and leadership. Enjoy. Hi, Brendan. How are you? Ian, great to be here with you. Thanks so much for inviting me on the podcast. Oh, it's great to have you here. There's so much I want to go over with you in the next uh, half an hour or so, but I want to start with a key question. You're standing on the start line in Hull, in Northern England, on the Spirit of Australia in 2009. It's a 68-foot clipper racing yacht. You've got nine identical yachts around you, and you are the youngest, least experienced I think you were 27 years old. Is that right, Brendan? Just turned 27, yeah. Just turned 27. You have an amateur crew with a bit of training behind them. And you've got 11 months and 35,000 miles of sailing across the world's toughest oceans ahead of you. So the key thing for me when I thought about all this, Brendan, was what got you there? You know, what were the things in your life that you could look back and think, those were the things that got me to that start line? What would they be for you, Brendan? Well, at, at that exact moment in time, there were only three words in my mind, and it was just don't crash. <laughs> so that's the, that's the start line moment. But no, I mean, upon reflection, yeah, you know, we look back and you think about what, what gets us to these moments in life. For me, it was it was taking a big chance. So I had a I had a very sort of solid career ahead of me. I worked in IT. I was in help desk support, but I was sort of raising, going up through my qualifications, everything else. And it was all sort of mapped out looking good. I decided that I wanted to change career entirely and become a professional sailor which was a really scary thing to do and I I, I sold everything I had and I, I moved from Australia to the UK where I, I, I've been based for the last sort of 20 years and went and did a, a sort of a sailing course and I remember when people sort of saw me go they were like okay good luck we'll see you back in six months you know go get this out of your system and you know and the next time I arrived back in Australia was was at the helm of this um this boat on this round the world race and the other moment was was probably having seen so I've been following this this race if you're into ocean racing that you you know about the clipper race and I went up to Liverpool to see the um the race two before mine uh, come in at the very finish and I remember seeing these boats and I remember seeing them leave at the very start of the race. I went up and saw the start and every, they're all shiny and everyone wearing these bright red oil skins. And, you know, they're all kind of quite green, but there's, you know, and you see them come back 11 months later and they're all kind of just kind of beaten up and worn and the, the oil skins have faded. And and you talk to the people there and they've just had this life changing experience. And you know what? I, I felt it was one of these weird moments where you just feel something about the trajectory of your life is is changing. I knew in that moment, I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. This is, you know, who I want to kind of become. And, and yeah, I, I sort of threw myself into it. I started working for the company and, and, and went through their kind of their work my way up internally, if you like. And then 2008, I, I sort of put my name in to become the skipper of, of one of the boats and went through this big, long selection process. About 160 people get whittled down to the final 10. And um yeah, I'll never forget. I got, I got, I got the gig, and you know, you call mum and dad on the phone. I did it, I did it, and they, you know, everyone's really happy for you. And then, uh, and then the ten of us got together, right? These ten skippers, and we'd all met each other a little bit in the, the, the pre-race kind of period, the selection process. We all get together now. We're all in the same room, 
and we're all sort of sizing each other up, you know. And I remember in that moment just feeling, you know, it's no, I, I don't like the phrase imposter syndrome because I think it, it sort of says something about a quality inside of you, but it was certainly an imposter moment for me where there's nine far more impressive, far older, more experienced kind of rivals and and suddenly my goal of, of sort of succeeding in this race and winning it was like there's no way i'm you know i'm just like the kid here and and you know what it, it wasn't helped by the fact that my my boss who um you know who was to become my boss he uh, he pulled me aside quietly and said by the way you were the 10th of the 10 selected <laughs> and I, I just I, I do wonder if he said that to everybody but it was like in that moment it's like geez man you just want to pop that balloon thanks very much How, how's that going to help um but anyway, so that, that, those were the moments. And then it was just four years of absolute hard, undistracted focus work to get from, from that period to, um, to to sitting on that start line of the race with all those challenges wow. ahead. And, uh, you know, you sort of, I, I sort of imagine myself standing there still with that maybe naivete of like, it's it's all going to go so well. And there'll be, there'll be challenges along the way, but I didn't quite have any idea of what was really in store for us. And what were you feeling? Were you feeling scared, excited, uh, all of the above? I mean, what, what were your emotions standing there on that start line, on the, on, on the yacht? All of those things. All of those things rolled into one. And I'll never forget there was this moment, right, just before the start you know they and they, they do this big celebration ceremony all the boats go up onto this big stage and the crews and you get you know and you sort of get clapped off and march down to your boats this big choreographed thing and I was, I was walking from the stage having sort of made this announcement and you know this is the team and everyone cheers and I'm walking down to the boat with the team you know you're sort of standing in front of this line of people and everyone and there was a, a crew member from a previous race who'd gone overboard mm. and he, he was he was rescued but it was close and I met I'd, I'd met him before and he was there on the side of the sort of the, the, the alley of us walking down to the boats. And I'll never forget, he, he actually grabbed me, grabbed me by the jacket. And he, he sort of pulled me in. And I'll never forget his words. It's like dead in the eyes, looks at you. And he says, promise you'll keep them safe. Promise me you'll keep them safe. And I remember it just, mm. it brings you back down to earth with a pretty big thud when you're reminded of someone who's, who's kind of been pretty close to being lost at sea. And, you know, all the sort of, I suppose, bravado in the moment really gets sucked back out. And you've got to remind yourself that these are people's lives that are in your hands. And, and really that it's, and, and they're not just people who've signed up for this race. They're, they're, they're mothers, they're fathers, brothers, sisters. They're, they're, they're crucial members of these family networks and and they're, they're you know they're precious people and you look after them it's it's quite extraordinary isn't it to think i remember when i first met you and brought you into one of the ceo groups i was working with and just learning about the fact that you know i could sign up for this as an amateur and do the course and you know pay my money and get on board one of these yachts it's quite extraordinary the responsibility you as you say you carry there to take these people around the world quite quite something it is it's a, it's a big responsibility but but here's the thing and this is this was always the big challenge for me and i realized this early on was that the people who sign up for this race they just have the most differing reasons for signing up unlike an all professional crew who are all there because they're being paid you know this is their career and they all kind of want to win with with my crew on this round the world race i had i had all motivations everything from someone who said they were on the race to try and meet a husband to someone who was like hardcore you know here to win second place was the first loser those were their exact words and so and everyone else in between and all those opinions very strongly held and people have paid a lot of money to get on the race they've put their lives on hold so they're hugely committed and and they've got very strong feelings about what they want to get out of the experience so as a leader you've got to go okay well whilst i can't give everybody exactly what they want there's got to be some kind of broad compromise that satisfies the most needs of the most people and people are happy to align with and throw their discretionary effort towards achieving a, a goal you set out that balances the winning of the race but also doing it in the right way where you you know you want to sort of stay friends and 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 have a good feeling on board and a good attitude and and, and good team spirit that's always the kind of the balance on these sailing boats because you can just go all out for performance but we decided that we didn't we didn't want to do that. We didn't want to win the race. Is if after that moment we just want to scatter and never see each other again. I'll come to the 
the dynamics of the people and the team because I you know I remember some of your stories well and you know that's where the probably heart of this lies but first of all tell us a bit about the race where did where did you sail to you know where were the where were the stops around the world just for our listeners of course yeah so the race starts it's a it's a it's a British thing you know proud to say it starts and finishes in the UK at, at some point this this year it was in Hull up in uh, you know River Humber which is an area I'd never really been to and it's sort of driven past by a lot of people but um, I, I absolutely loved Hull I think because uh, they, they had a big sponsorship deal they, they brought a lot of people into the, the city and it was a big excitement so we sailed out the Humber sailed down the channel and first leg was down to Rio de Janeiro Brazil so about 30 days that took us from Rio we went back across the uh, South Atlantic to Cape Town South Africa South Africa, then back down into the Southern Ocean around the Cape of Good Hope and to Western Australia. Then we went north through Asia, uh, through Indonesia, Singapore, and then to uh, Qingdao in northern China, right up to the Korean Peninsula. And then from there back down around the bottom of Japan and out across the Pacific, which, you know, the longest leg of the race, 35 days. It took us six and a half thousand nautical miles to San Francisco, San Francisco south through the Panama Canal and then up to New York. And then back across the North Atlantic to uh, the Netherlands and back to UK. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? It's when you when you just reel them off, it sounds absolutely bonkers. And do some people do the whole thing, or do do people generally do a leg? Yes. So I had my team of forty four people on the boat. There are there are essentially twenty beds. So there's twenty people on board at any one time. But when people sign up, they can either say, "Yeah, I'm going to do the full eleven month trip." or you can sign up for just one of several shorter sections, you know, a leg or two legs. So I had 10 crew who'd signed up to do the whole thing. So they were my sort of consistent team, if you like. Mm -hmm. And then at every stopover, imagine this, 10 people, the other 10, they leave and another 10 join. So you've got a a 50% staff turnover, if you like. But, you know, and and so you had some challenges. You didn't, you didn't want to let cliques form because the, the experienced 10 who have become bonded together and have been through all this stuff and the, you know their experience is just growing and growing and then they got to onboard another time this set of people who are you know they're kind of well they're a bit green right they mm. it's been an even longer time since they did the training so the, the skills gap between the round the worlders and the new leggers particularly in the later part of the race was just getting bigger and bigger so that dynamic of bringing people in harnessing their fresh energy making sure they stay safe of course number one priority and kind of using them as as a kind of not not a disposable labor force i don't mean it that way but kind of um getting them as involved in using their kind of their strength because for the round the world team by the end of the race, you, you, you sort of your long-term energy levels, your fatigue, long-term fatigue is just setting in. So you can't do it all yourself. You've got to bring the fresh people in and you've got to get them kind of um, up to speed and, and, and acting as soon as they can. Wow. Wow. That's quite a dynamic, isn't it? Where you've got kind of half the people there who are, who are long-termers, who are, you know, your lifers, they're with you. They, they know all the ropes, as it were, literally, probably. And then a bunch of people coming in for a short stay. So... Tell me, so you set off from Hull, this first leg to Rio, how long is that going to take you? About 30 days, depends on how fast you can get across the equator in that windless doldrum zone there. But yeah, a a long leg to begin, relatively benign conditions compared to what was to come later on, going to the Southern Ocean or the North Pacific, where it gets a bit more dangerous. We had some issues, you know, as as I'm sure every boat did on that first leg. This is the first time you talk you, you talk a great game before the race, and you you have your vision and your values and your right stuff up on flip charts, and and it, because you're in that early bonding stage as a team, everyone's best friends, and you're super polite to each other, and you think this is going to be great, and then you go out to sea, and you're 15 days in, and you're sleep deprived. You're exhausted. I mean, of course, everyone's missing home and family, and whilst you, the excitement of being out on this big adventure is you know you, you're just kind of you're now in you're, you're now in it you're in the day-to-day the routine and and it is it's 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 pretty punishing it's certainly compared to what most people's normal daily routines would be like hmm. it was at this point of the race that i i think i fell into my first big people management mistake of the race and and again and it links back to this sort of imposter moment right this and maybe feeling inadequate feeling younger than than some of the other skippers right i put a huge amount of pressure on myself and like i said i talked a great game before the race and set very high expectations and now we were having to deliver on them and and we weren't really living up to what we talked about i felt scrutiny on me from other members of my team and the outside world everyone kind of peering in I let my emotional state get too closely coupled to the performance of the boat. 
I was sort of overly invested in our, our numbers, you know, and, and we get these position reports. Every six hours, you get a, you get a little update in it, a retrospective measure telling you in the last six hours how you've compared race-wise against your, your nine identical rivals. And if the, the results were good, then, you know, I was in a good, I was in a good place and I, I, I would show up in the right kind of way as a leader. But if the results were bad, if we'd fallen behind, if we'd, then I, I'm prone to catastrophic thinking, right? I'd sit there and I'd get really angry. I didn't really have a, an explanation as to why it was no one's fault. You know, so many inputs to, to you know, lead to these, these performance figures. But, you know, I sort of felt it was all on me. And so what I would do, right, uh, maybe some of your listeners can, can relate to this. I've got a really strong writing reflex. So the minute I see something starting to sort of veer off what I consider optimal, you know, you pull the, the underpants on, you put the cape on. It's like, right, leadership time. OK. And I'd, I'd immediately go and all the all the good kind of trust building and delegating and empowerment and all that stuff that, I, you know, I'd said was really important and we had been doing. I'd immediately kind of rip it all back from from their control. I'd sort of take back control myself. I'd start trimming the sails myself and I'd, you know, drive the boat for a bit and I'd be looking at the instruments and, and it was sort of like this is your problem to solve. And and really the signal I was giving the team was I I'm empowering you, I, I trust you, you're doing well. And then the minute the results don't bear fruit, I'm I'm ripping it all back out of the hand. So they they were kind of getting these real mixed signals. And and the thing about this, right, is I think we're all really good at telling ourselves stories about our behaviours and creatively self-justifying how we act after the fact. I'll never forget the way if someone had interviewed me like right now, like and said, well, in that moment and said, like, what sort of a leader are you being now? Go. I would have said, well, you know, I'm, I'm a passionate leader. I'm hugely invested in this project and our performance. And uh, it's all about standards, Ian. If, if if we're meeting the standards that we've set for ourselves, and I, I obviously want to celebrate that because we're doing well. And, and if we, But if we're not meeting those standards that we've set ourselves and we want to hold ourselves accountable to, then I want to communicate that as well so that we can, we can close the delta. I mean, sounds great, right? But this emotional volatility was just ripping apart the fabric of this team. And I, I couldn't see it. It was one of these things that was in my blind spot, man. And, and this carried on for eight days, right? They let it go with these pendulum swings, I think starting out modest, but, but getting quite big by the end. This, and, and this was in, in my blind spot. And I mean, I feel self-conscious even sort of talking to you and, and telling other people about this now, right? But I think probably a lot of us can relate to these feelings. The eight days, the crew mutinied. Did they? We all know that word, mutiny, you know, it comes from sailing. But how did that manifest itself? What happened? Yeah, so there were some guns hidden on board. No, I'm kidding. Um, it was, there, was, there was no violence involved. It was a, <laughs> I, I, I call it, um, and this is stereotyping, forgive me, that I, I called it a very British mutiny. <laughs> there was no violence. It was, they, the crew had a, uh, a meeting without me in the middle of the night right. whilst I was asleep so as not to confront or offend. And yeah, they, they, they got together and, and in hushed tones talked about this effect of this behavior and how it was affecting each of them personally and how morale on board was going down and you know that we can't go on like this this isn't going to be sustainable for 11 months and um bless her one of the, one of the crew she she volunteered to speak for the team mm-hmm. and bring it to my attention the next day and, and she did and she confronted me when I, when I was doing this kind of i just looked at the numbers and they weren't great and you, you know your head's going down and the angry thoughts start to sort of swirl around she said right we need to have a talk yeah, she tells me, you know, we've had it, we've had a meeting without you last night, and we've just <laughs> been discussing this behaviour. And I tell you, there's something to get your heart rate like shot right up to about 150 BPM. And she tells me everything they've talked about, and and finishes off with that lovely phrase, "This is the change we expect to see." Oh my God. And I, I, I don't know about you, but I, you know, I, I was kind of lost my words. I don't, I didn't know what to say, or I didn't, I didn't get sort of fiery and fight back or anything. But I'll, I'll never forget. It was a real kind of opener for me and I, I I did have to go to my bunk and sort of have a good old look at myself and and understand this 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 shadow you cast over the team as a leader you know your mood becomes their mood your attitude becomes their attitude and yeah that's that was their feedback to me they said when you're up man it brings us up we love it and when you're down it crashes us down and and it's we just can't go on the roller coaster ride with you and we don't expect you to be like riding high and having to you know g everyone up every day but we need you to just be we want you to be your authentic self but we need you to understand that part of your role is to provide a consistent emotional presence on board the boat something that we can kind of depend on we know what we're going to get and it's funny i've I've spoken to some a, a leader who said this to me and it was a flippant comment don't take it seriously but he said it's better to be a consistent bastard than someone who's really up and down. Mm, I know what he means. And I think mm. it's it's a there's a there's a little nugget of truth there is that people want consistency versus volatility. Yeah. 
and and so you know I, I had to kind of be that version of myself that was sort of generally in the middle a bit more a bit more zen a bit more stoic about the performance and detach my personal feelings from the performance of the boat and, and you know and it was a hard lesson to learn and I think perhaps if I'd been an older more experienced gritty leader already then maybe I wouldn't have listened I would have said well this is me and this is what I'm doing but my youth and relative inexperience made, made me more receptive to that feedback but it was a it was a piece of feedback that I needed to hear and needed to action and you know what I, I made a big change and yeah I was I was a, a lot more sort of emotionally consistent throughout the rest of the race so that that was a big roadblock that I think we sort of pushed out the way and and, and it didn't, didn't take hold again so important isn't it I mean when I think of as you were saying that I was thinking about the leaders I work with and how much all the leaders I work with, mainly of SMEs now, although I used to work with some of the people you're working with now, like the Toyotas of this world. Mm. And you realize quite quickly that in most organizations, the energy, a lot of the energy comes from the leadership team. And, you know, they walk around, they walk into a room, uh, they bring energy, they bring excitement, they bring motivation, or mm. they come into that room and they, they throw a bomb in there. Or they come in and say nothing and walk out. And then the effect, they don't, some of them don't realize this. It's emotional intelligence to understand what have I just done in that room? And of course, for you, it was confined, wasn't it? I mean, you couldn't go anywhere else in the building. That was it. Mm. So how did you deal with this, Brendan? I mean, this must have been, especially you're on your first leg. You're, th you're thinking from the start, this is going to be amazing. Now you've, you've done one leg and you're thinking, oh, my God, where are we? What what happened then? What did you do? Yeah, yeah. So I uh, I had a, a debrief with everyone in Rio de Janeiro, and you know they 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 highlighted some of these things, and I wanted to hear their feedback, and they gave me a lot to think about, and I, I realised I needed to make some changes to the way I led the team, and we talked a lot about trust and how we were going to rebuild that trust, and 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 for me to not be such a controlling leader, like to safely, within the, the safety framework, of course, that's always number one, sort of slowly give them some more control over things and, and not be so quick to sort of jump in and take that control back the minute the minute I saw something changing. And so we, we set off from, from Rio, having learned that lesson as a team into the Southern Ocean on our, our leg to Cape Town, because it's, you look at a globe and you think you, you can just sort of sail directly there in a straight line because of the winds and the way they move. You, you need to head south first so you, you go right down south into the southern ocean then and then sort of turn left and, and, and head across the southern ocean to Cape Town um, so that, that was where the race was going to get pretty dangerous really it was going to be a big step up from anything we'd seen before and, and in fact 10 days in we're you know halfway between the two continents you know we, we have our first big catastrophe of the race our first big disaster at sea and it was a, a crash jibe, a big wipeout in sailing boat world. The boat crashed right over onto its side. Loads of stuff broken and damaged and sails ripped to shreds. And thankfully, touch wood, no serious injury or, or, or death or anything else. But it was, you know, it was close. It was close, man. And the, and the reason the reason it happened, mm. I had put too much sail up. We, with, with sailing, as, as the wind increases, you want to decrease the amount of sail you've got in on the boat to keep a sort of an, an optimum amount. But mm -hmm. you can keep more sail up as the wind increases and you'll go fast. You will go fast. You'll be on rails. But you're taking that risk dial and you're dialing it up. You're notching it up. And I reckon our risk dial was where it was normally about a five. We'd ratcheted it up to about a 10. So there was no room for error. And then there was a, a little LED light bulb that illuminates our steering compass. And the, the helmsman was was driving the boat with this the compass as your main reference point because it's totally dark around you. And, uh, and the, the 5P LED light bulb winks out, just stops working. And suddenly you're blind. Wow. And we got way we got way too much sail up, and we just and we just sort of career into this this big, uncontrolled maneuver, and and boom, and we got loads of damaged equipment, and and I remember the the boat was laying on its side, and and everyone's I'm standing at the very back, you know, sort of just watching it all, and everyone's little head torch they're wearing, all the head torches turn around, and they're all looking at me, and I'm sort of standing there, illuminated, you know, and it's like crisis management mode, and what do you do? with all the feelings of, of guilt, because you know in that moment you push too hard, you've come unstuck. And so, yeah, you know, I had to, had to get the, the boat sort of the, the safely upright again and all the damaged stuff in and, you know, look after everyone. But then you've got this longer aftermath. You've had this big traumatic experience, this big setback. How are people going to be feeling? You know, we're not going to be able to race competitively because we've, we've got so much damaged equipment. And yeah. So, so how do you actually sort of get the team through that period and then back into the race when you're able? Mm -hmm. 
so yeah I, I didn't handle it brilliantly to be honest I <laughs> it's another another sort of lesson that you learn you know I thought I was uh, I had a little psychometric profile said you can competently handle crisis situations give compelling calls to action you never know till you're tested right at that point so you'd had the had the heart to heart in Rio you you've then 10 days into the southern ocean you know the worst ocean or the hardest ocean in the world you've had a bit of a crisis on board are they at that point looking at you and saying uh, are you going to sort this out? Are they blaming you for what's happened? Or are they more in the state of, well, actually, now I feel we're all in this together, so let's all muck in and, and, and just a bit of guidance from you? I mean, what's this relationship now between the team and you? How's it, how is it at this point? It's, it's good. I think we'd, we'd had the heart-to-heart in Rio, and I think this incident in the South Atlantic and, and the Southern Ocean, you know, it highlighted... A couple of things. I don't think people looked at me with any sort of blame or a sort of, oh, is this is he is he up to this? Is he competent enough to do it? You know, I mm. I, I was keeping them safe, and and this is a race at the end of the day. So whilst we never put it to a democratic vote, people understood that we we had to push if we wanted to achieve our goals. If you think, well, we just got to sail safely, then you'll just sail super slow and come in tenth on every race. But we did want to we did want to push this. So. There, but there's an expectation from all the crew, you know, and, and one of the things that I think attract them to the race is that there is, it, this is a genuine competition. You are going to dangerous places. And whilst you're never reckless with the way you sail, crises are going to come up on this thing. No one's going to sail around the world with no problem, no incidents, no mishaps ever. They will happen. It's kind of statistically inevitable, really, given the inherent risks in just doing this thing, the duration of time you're at sea. And, you know, you just you've got to hope that they're handled in the right way. And, and certainly no one gets gets hurt. I think they were all right. Again, I didn't handle the, the situation brilliantly, mm-hmm. but in, in the aftermath of it. But what it highlighted for us was the fact that we didn't have a huge kind of speak up culture. Right. People didn't feel safe to challenge uh, me on these kind of decisions. And whilst we didn't have a kind of a blame culture on board, we, we weren't very good at talking about things after they'd happened, having those difficult conversations, I suppose, where we unpack what had happened, make sure that we learn something from it. And, and, and so it doesn't happen again. You know, I think it's easy because you're in this continuous stream of work. You just sort of you push past and go, right, OK, let's let's move on, guys. Uh, you know, put eyes eyes forward. Let's just think about the future and, and go on and, and, and try not to let that happen again without having really talked it through. So yeah, we, we had to talk about this incident. And I remember feeling the resistance, you know, that's that's a pretty tricky conversation to have in the aftermath of some huge setback, you know, blame can creep in, trustworthiness gets questioned, credibility comes into question. You know, I'm sure we've all been there, right? The defensive shields shoot up, people start status managing in front of other people. Mm. And, you know, and, and nothing nothing of any kind of real benefit comes from it. You know, it it, it it's not a great conversation. So we had to develop the conversation skills to talk about our experiences, the bad ones especially, but but the good ones as well, unpack when, when we did well, and be able to talk about it in, in an open, honest kind of forum so that we could, we could turn it into some kind of improvement action. So uh, so we did that. And one of my team, I'll never forget, she, she summarized it at the end, really, really lovely. And she said, we need to make a promise to each other that we'll be the team that only has to learn the hard lessons once. Nice. Kind of accepting that they that they would happen, you know, and because it, it wasn't just us. Mm. This was this was playing out on nine other boats, and we had to do this bit well. Something has happened. How do we learn from it? Make sure it doesn't happen again. Learn lessons and continuously improve. And and you know what? By the end of the race, months and months and months later, that idea, only having to learn the hard lessons once, mm. was our one of our biggest competitive advantages. We didn't fall into the same traps, the same patterns, the same habits again and again and again. And many of the other boats did. They, and they never were able to talk about these things, perhaps because it was, it was too sensitive or too difficult. or The personality of the, the skipper wasn't, wasn't open to it. And, yeah, they just kind of stayed doing the same thing forevermore. There's so many parallels with leadership here, aren't there? You know, you've got a great leader who says, we're going to go at some speed in this organization. We're going for this turnover. We're going for this sales. You know, you can see the parallels in so many organizations here. But you've said there was, you know, this one of these pivotal moments for you was when this lady said to you, we're only going to learn the hard lessons once. And was this, as you've sort of intimated, because 
when you had a hard lesson, you all sort of rolled your sleeves up and, uh, and said, right, what happened? And you broke it down so that you really all understood it and bought into it. Was was that it? Was that was it as simple as that? It's kind of like sharing the responsibility, sharing the issues and then like learning the lessons. Was it was, was that it? Well, absolutely. In, in, exactly. And you know what? The, it's it's very easy on, on a, a sailing boat or on a, a, anything that involves serious risk to life or, or injury and that the, the overriding priority has to be safety. So you're like, we, we have to talk about this because if not, someone could get hurt next time. And, and so it forces the conversation in a way that can doesn't necessarily get forced in an organization when maybe an expectation hasn't been delivered upon in the the, you know, the right time frame whatever but unlocking that is is absolutely key one of the things that we did do really well was every time we got into port we, we had a, a debrief so we get together or you know we give everyone a couple of days just to go away and, and gather their thoughts before we, we got back together and and when we did we we talked about you know, all the incidents that had happened, you know, you know, kind of stop, start, continue type framework, you know. But what, what I realized, right, was that it's really difficult to show that vulnerability in front of people, particularly as a leader. And I, I really, I struggled with it. You know, I I kind of thought, and maybe again, this is the, the imposter syndrome speaking, but, you know, you, you share with people, say, okay, well, look, this is what I got wrong. This is, I, I put way too much sail up, or I, I didn't put it up myself, but, you know, I, I made the decision not to shorten sail when I should have done. And, you know, you're there cynically thinking, they're, going, they're thinking, oh, just like we were all saying, just all along, we've been telling, we've been saying this to each other, and finally he's admitting it. And But you know what, the, the thing I did, as soon as I'd said that, I could sort of see the body language in the room change, because people had been kind of on defensive, and as soon as they see you kind of put yourself out there, say something quite, quite open and vulnerable in front of them, you know, I, I could see it sort of softened, the shoulders relaxed, and people started to speak. And you know what? It was it was that that situation repeated a few times because people need to see it a few times before they'll really know that you're serious about this. But people started because I'd, I'd set a level of disclosure there and I'd kind of created some psychological safety and shown that we're not playing the blame game here. We're here to talk openly and, and honestly. And people started to talk and they started to talk in a way we hadn't really been able to up until that point or hadn't felt enabled to. It's this weird group dynamic, right? There was never a competition in my team, but it was this sort of, everyone wanted to share all the good things they were doing and how much of a team player they were being and all the kind of their wins and their ideas and like what they're bringing to this group. And and, because that reflects well on them, right? It's sort of their stock raises in everyone else's eyes, but it was harder to talk about, okay, well, look, this is what I messed up. This is what I've learned. These these are my fears um, about, you know, what, what we've got coming up. Those things you worry reflect badly on you. There was a bit of status management and it, it was one of those things. And I, I think it was it wasn't done deliberately, but it was just people see what other people are doing around them. And there's sort of just a, a momentum that carries it away and it stops people talking about these things that they've learned and they can share with that. That lead, they, they started talking. We started talking. We created a bit more psychological safety. And that's where we unlocked all this learning, the ability to learn deeply from every particularly bad incident that we we faced and make sure that we only ever had to learn it one time, one time. But what it enabled us to do was then to unpack all the good stuff that we did, understand what was replicable and what was maybe just good luck and, and just continuously improve. And like I said, so our debriefs were super thorough. And by the end of the race, I think we were the team doing that bit, that better than, than all the other teams. And it was, it was a bit of our superpower. And do you think there was a time where you sort of woke up one morning and thought, I think this team and I have kind of turned a corner here. We've gone from a kind of slightly dysfunctional one where we started to one that kind of pulls together, understands what we're doing and and kind of is really bought into this journey. I mean, was there a moment or was it over a few moments? I mean, how did that play out? It's one of those weird ones. No, I don't. I, there was never that feeling of like we're, we're sort of a finished product here. But again, because there was always this churn of people. So this round the world team getting very, very bonded and experienced. And But you're always having to bring new people in. So the team was always sort of changing and evolving. Following that experience, that hard experience where we, we, we got a really poor result, um, we went on. We started doing really well. And, and then we had our first piece of success 
real success on the race from Singapore to Qingdao. So we got first place for that that stretch there. So we, that was that was amazing. That's where we sort of felt like our star is on the rise here, and we're we're sort of slowly stepping into you know our power as a team and and, and uh we're in contention for a, a podium finish at the end of this thing and you so you get to Qingdao. how far are you through the race at that point about two-thirds of the way through two th- wow so you're a long way through you're thinking we've gone from you, you probably weren't near the front in the first leg then were you <laughs> going back to what you said you're probably near the back yeah, yeah. You? yeah so you've now you've now kind of proved yourself the stats are good you know we're over halfway through two-thirds of the way through where do you go from there and how does the how does the team get so I'm assuming this team gets as you said kind of they they get better and better yeah yeah so we um we, we did the we did the Pacific crossing where we had we had quite an incident so the, the North Pacific was was the most treacherous part of this whole race right and right. It, the longest leg as well uh, uh, about 35 days it was going to take us but real uh, middle of winter just freezing cold kind of big storm hurricane force conditions as we crossed so yeah this was this was going to be the big one we sail around the, the southern tip of Japan down the Yellow Sea around Japan and then out across the Pacific and we get struck by our first big North Pacific storm and, and on one of the other boats in the race a boat called Hull and Humber the boat that was sponsored by Hull and, and the region of Humberside they had a, a horrendous knockdown so knockdowns where that where a wave hits the boat right on its side and rolls it right over in the water sort of to 90 degrees and and, and the, the, the force of the water cascading across the deck washed, washed their skipper's legs out from under him and up against a steel um, fitting and, and, and broke his, his leg, right leg. Tib and fib pushed out through the skin. It was really, wow. really bad. Yeah, horrendous. He was he was losing blood. He was taken inside. So but he was out. You know, he was sedated with morphine. The Japanese Coast Guard sending out one of their fast patrol ships to evacuate him, to take him back to, to uh, for care. And I, I, I get told all this on the satellite phone. From, from the boss back in the UK, you know, at, at HQ. And he tells me to uh, immediately suspend racing. You know, we'll sort the points out another time, turn the boat around and get back to Hull and Humber and, and rendezvous with them because one of my team was an A&E uh, doctor on board the boat. So she was going to be able to help them over the, the radio. The, the plan that came together, because this, this boat was now leaderless, you know, they couldn't carry on like this. The plan that came together between all the... The stakeholders and regulators and, and, and everyone else that sort of sits around and above this event was that one of the skippers from one of the other boats would transfer across onto Hull and Humber, make sure that the evacuation was done safely, and then they would stay on that boat mm-hmm. and skipper that boat in tandem with their own boat the rest of the way across the North Pacific to San Francisco. And <laughs> the reason we'd been asked to turn around wasn't just because we had the, the dock on board, was because that was their eventual ask of me to leave my team wow. to get off onto this other boat. And the reason was because out of, out of all the boats in the race, my team is the one that had the most empowerment. You know, I'd entrusted them the most. I'd, or creating that autonomous team right from the start was, was our, our biggest priority and top value that we had. And, you know, we'd, we'd done it. I, I was the leader who I think taken the most backward steps, allowing the team to sort of stand to their full height, to have decision-making autonomy within, you know, within a very strict safety regulatory framework, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but within that, this team were biased towards taking bold action on their own. They knew what decisions they could make on their own without me. And it was, you know, and it was something we'd worked very hard towards. The investment to create that came early on, albeit with that rocky start on the way to Rio. But the payoff was coming now. The multiplier effect was coming now, and it was um, it was it was motivating. You know, we all we all want to feel that personal autonomy, and no one likes to feel super micromanaged. It freed up my time as a leader then to think big picture, to think strategy, to think you know ensuring safety and the well-being of the team, and doing the stuff that added value at a higher level rather than just sort of supervising the operational you know all day long. And finally, it was death. Because we, we had to know, and it's this weird, morbid thought that every sailor has to consider that at any point you could be killed, incapacitated, washed over the side, lost. And the team or whoever else is on board with you have to be able to get the boat to safety yeah. in some direction, in some direction. And, and, and these guys, that was something we'd all talked about. And now they're being really put to the test and asked, you know, sail the boat without your skipper across the Pacific. And this you know, the, one of the most dangerous parts of this race. And it was a rock and a hard place decision. I mean, what do I say? I sort of work in a bit of a group structure. Yes, boss, help look after things at group level. Or do, or do I say, no, man, 
your problem to solve. Were you asked or were you told that, that you know, this had to happen? Was it, was it a, look, we have to get you, you're the best? Was it a bit of persuasion or, uh, or was it, you know, it's your choice? No, they, um, so here's, here's, here's sort of a, that's a maritime rule, right? Is that no one can, the, the final decision for anything that happens on board a, a vessel, be it a, a huge cargo ship or, or, or a sailing yacht like ours, lies with the, the skipper, the, the captain of that vessel. And no one ashore can force your hand to do anything that is against your best judgment, mm-hmm. which is good because it means, you know, ultimately, whatever they say, you know, you'll be you'll be sacked when you when you get ashore or whatever. But in that moment, it's it's on you. Which I think is right. That's that's the that's the correct view to have. So they they did. They said we, this is what we want you to do. This is the plan. But knowing that we can't, if if you dig your heels in and say no, I'm not doing this, then we you know <laughs> there's not a lot we can do about it. You're, you're thousands of miles away. So yeah, I had to I had to agree to it. I had to agree to it. And here's the thing. And if if you permit me to digress for a moment, yeah, I remember as I as I as I gave the team this empowerment, right, this in this sort of room to grow and stand to the full height. I remember feeling I was fading into the background a little bit. Do you know what I mean? You start feeling a little bit redundant and you dig a little bit deeper and maybe you don't feel quite so important. You don't feel quite so validated. You don't feel valued or seen in the same way that you did back when you were the font of all knowledge and that sort of instructive leader shouting instructions to a willing crew and all eyes on you and you're sort of deferred to. And it, it's quite it's quite a, a validating thing, isn't it? And I, I think it, it's not that it makes you a megalomaniac, but it makes you work hard and give more of yourself to people. And as, as, as you kind of create this empowered team, you start feeling like, I don't feel that way anymore. And, and you feel something's a bit lacking. And I remember sort of the temptation was to kind of grab back hold and take that more control because you, you want that feeling back. But really, it, it's that journey you've got to go on as a leader, going from that kind of heroic leader to that servant leader, that supporting leader who's there to have a... A kind of create momentum and clarity for a team and whilst it feels less like you're having a, a less of a personal impact what you're doing is, is you're, you're sustaining momentum you've got to derive your satisfaction from seeing other people do it on their own rather than you know you get the the sort of the strokes and the, and the validation and so that's kind of the journey I was on and then I get given this opportunity come be a hero take on this thing and I I mean I can't exactly put myself back into you know the, that moment and go what, what was going through your your neurons at that moment but i'm sure it played into it just a little bit it's the ultimate test for a leader isn't it where you you know you get to a point have you developed your team well enough that you can actually walk away keep in touch with them but walk away and they'll keep this in your case you know boat going forward uh, and safely and on the broad plans that that you had co-created with them while you go and do something else what will they think how will it work are they developed enough are they mature enough have they got all the right skill i mean it's the ultimate question for leaders and and i always think when leaders go from that pivotal moment of doing to visioning strategizing stepping back and they have to figure out what's their new role because their old role was very, very well established. They knew what they were doing because they were doing it. Now, I think one of the big fears for a leader is, what's my new role? How do, how do I work that out? And that was, I guess, where you were. Now, you were working out this brand new role, which was letting them do the, the stuff, the doing, and doing the more strategic stuff. And what, what was that? How did that play out? I mean, and, and what happened at that point? Well, so, I mean, I would say that I had to be on deck still a lot, of course. Um, you know, don't think this was me just kind of abdicating, respond, you know, just sail the boat on your own. No, but it was more about deciding on the strategy. There's there's a lot of data analytics. There's a lot of number crunching. And so it was it was looking and doing really good analysis of that. It was making sure the well-being of the team was, was being looked after and doing the coaching and the mentoring and the training and those things which do take hours of the day and the other the other key part was rest i learned the value of, of rest and you know a hard, hard working person you know and it's like you don't ask your team to do anything that you couldn't wouldn't do yourself and leave from the front and all that stuff but i realized that when i wasn't well rested when i wasn't looking after myself i was making bad decisions or you know not optimal decisions i was a little bit of that emotional volatility started to creep back in i didn't have that sort of patience i i, I expected of myself and you know like we all do you know we just become a bit grumpy and a bit sometimes intolerable so i had to make sure that i managed my rest so that i could be 
a good leader for the team. Yeah, adding value sort of judiciously. And then we, we sail on. So that became the plan. I was in charge of two boats and we stayed within 15 miles so we could always talk on the radios. And we took a slightly more southerly route than the rest of the fleet who raced off ahead of us. And we, we were sailing across the North Pacific and we, we ended up going through um, one of these hurricane weather systems. And I'll never forget that moment. And I actually went to the toilet and was sick, <laughs> violently sick, thinking, this is it. Someone, someone, someone is really going to die tonight. And it was that feeling of I've, I've abandoned my team, I've left them, the guilt that went along with that. And, and I could only imagine at that moment, the looks they were giving each other and the words they were saying to each other. And, you know, I, I was 15 nautical miles away and I could call them any, any moment I wanted to on the radio. But, but really, they, they, were, they were on their own. And they're just, just an ordinary bunch of people, you know, they're not, not SAS people, they're, they're, they're just ordinary, ordinary folks. And mm. they, they were in a serious survival condition, as you can really get at sea. They got through it. They, they absolutely smashed it. They sailed the boat super safely. They did everything right, totally by the book. And and, and, and they, they emerged from it. And we, we went to the rescue of another vessel who'd been dismasted in the same hurricane. And, and we ended up with three three boats wow. in, in in a little row, three little ducklings. And we, we escorted the, the damaged boat who had lost its <laughs> mast. We, we took them into to San Francisco safely. And, and, and really in that, that crossing was their biggest victory. And, and the thing I hold most dear years later, you know, when the, the, the thrill of the, the eventual win that we got, you know, sort of faded. Yeah. And to think that they, that, you know, they, they did it themselves through the, the most challenging conditions really you can get at sea. And, and there's a huge amount of luck involved there as well. You know, I knock on wood. It, one of those waves could have had their name on it. But they, they got each other through and they, they did everything right. And, and really, that was a huge, another huge growth moment for our team. Because we debriefed in San Francisco, talked all through. Again, I took another little step with back step. My thing in the team became more of a sort of consultant, again, adding value at that, that higher, higher level for them. And yeah, and over the course of the rest of the race, we um, did really, really well. And in fact, we, we came back into the UK and uh, had, had won this thing by um, this, this huge margin in the end. And, and I tell you, it wasn't, it wasn't because I was the best sailor or, or strategist. You know, like I said, youngest, least experienced skipper, and I've catalogued for everyone today here on the Gritty Leaders podcast, you know, all the, the sort of the, the failings and problems and issues that we had. But but at the end of the day, you know, the things that made the difference were, you know, creating that psychological safety, being emotionally consistent, empowering the team, you know, the stuff we all know we should do, but often find it hard to do when we're sort of in the flow of, of work and, and, you know, firefighting all the problems that come our way. But it was doing those things with ups and downs fairly consistently through the course of this race is what what got us there in the end so yeah it was it was a race of 10 teams not a race of 10 boats and 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 the way that we the lessons that we learned along the way were the things that that got us to the success in the end and they all came from hard moments Mm. we didn't learn anything from those moments where you know everything's just going well and we're like this is great you know we're collaborating really well the great feeling on board let's just continue this it was it was the learnings you take and which is why i think you know your, your whole podcast is about the gritty leaders you don't become a gritty leader until you've seen some stuff and been through the trenches and that's what makes you that high quality leader who because because you've, you've experienced that stuff and you've lived to tell the tale and you've learned something from it extraordinary uh, it's an extraordinary story when you finished that because it you know as you said it was quite a long journey for you to actually win becoming a skipper you know and doing this 11 months and then you you get through everything you've said southern ocean the pacific and all the other lessons you've learned this team you come over the line and you win it uh was there a sense of what how can i repeat this you know what can i do with my world now this is you know, where were you going to go at that point? What were you going to do at that point? Was this a sort of pivotal moment in your life where you thought, my gosh, I can't go and do this again. You know, is there something else I need to do? Do I need, was that when you decided to write the book and document it all? You know, where did you go from there? Yeah, so it, it was it was one of those things, right, where you, uh, I, I spoke to some leaders and they, they talk about, you know, maybe they've, they've sold their company and it's some, it's been something that you've just been working towards relentlessly for years and years and years. And you think that when I get to that moment and I get that thing that I've wanted, suddenly life is going to change and it's just easy street from here on and I will be infused with this sort of golden light and just drift through the rest of my life. No, um, I tell you, I, I got everything I wanted, right? We won, I won the race, set out and, and had this big goal and, 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 and did it. And that feeling of well-being inside, it lasts for about a week. 
and then and then and then you're just back into the flow of life and it's it's that it's that hedonic treadmill isn't it and and i was left i was a little bit rudderless i didn't have a lot of direction yeah i got a little bit depressed actually you know just and, and it took me a while to kind of get through that that post-race phase and whilst i would never compare it to directly with someone who'd maybe come back from you know an, a, a, a military operation or anything like that i can certainly relate to that that feeling of having been through a very sort of powerful traumatic moments in an experience and then just coming back to sort of the normality of, of, of the normal world i had to have another project to go on to and i'm, I'm, I'm not a serial adventurer so no i'm not trying to climb everest or uh, you know kayak down the amazon or anything like that i'm i'm here now uh, after that i went and did super yachts for five years which was interesting working on big luxury sort of sailing uh, vessels with my um, my partner at the time now now wife and and yeah since since kids have arrived now based in the uk and i go and do speaking engagements for corporates and smes talking to leaders and teams about how to go through adversity, how to go through transformational change, and you know, just giving them some some tools and actions that can really help them go through those things with lessons that relate back to my story as well. So you're giving back now in a way. I mean, I can relate to some of the stuff you're doing because I do some of the similar stuff, and the, there's probably nothing more rewarding than seeing somebody have a light bulb go on that you've been in a room and then maybe helped that light bulb come on about their leadership or their teamwork or something. Is do you, do you get as much reward and enjoyment now about doing the things you're doing as you got? I mean, very different. I mean, you know, there was that excitement of a, a wave crashing overboard and the potential to lose somebody. And it's very different for you now, this world you live in. Where does your joy and energy and excitement come from now? Three things, only three things. And that's that's my wife and my son and my daughter. You know, and I, I, I live for them now and, and just being being a good and present father and, and, and introducing my kids to the joy of sailing and, and you know it's I, I look forward every every Friday afternoon we go and do Friday fun which is down at a little sailing club we take a little a little wooden boat and we, we take it out and and go sailing and, and really that's that's it that's my joy that's my satisfaction in, in life right now so Brendan what now for Brendan Hall you've done all these amazing things you're giving back you're speaking you're working with SME leaders you're coaching you're doing a whole variety of things what now does the future look like for you I love what I'm doing now. I love I love doing the speaking work. Something I'm working on right now is I'm building a simulation, a business simulation uh, around managing sort of expectations within teams and creating a fun kind of half day gamified experience where people get to sail around the world and go through some of these challenges, tackle them together in a safe classroom based environment. Um, but it's something that I want to I want to roll out to my corporate clients and, and also create a version for schools. So to sort of give you know, kids in high school, particularly who are going to go into the workforce, the ability to accept challenge, to talk, to debate ideas, you know, different conceptions of what a good leader, a good teamwork looks like. And, um, and yeah, to be able to sort of run it with them as well. Wow. What a lovely, what a lovely end. And, 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 and so nice to give back to, to kids as well. Look, Brendan, thank you very much for giving up the time to come on the Gritty Leaders podcast. I love your story. I think it's completely inspirational, but with so many lessons there for leaders that you've highlighted today. I can't wait to bring you in again to a group I'm working with. Your stuff is worth every penny and, and, and more than I can possibly think of. So, so thanks for the, the time today and good luck with everything in the future. Thank you very much, Ian. Great, great to speak with you and uh, look forward to speaking to you again soon. 